0: Chapter twelve of the Four Faces by William LECU. This recording is in the public domain, recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter twelve THE Broad Highway. Had Dulcie consulted me before accepting Mrs. Stapleton's invitation to dinner, I should have improvised some plausible excuse for declining. She had not, however, given me the chance of refusing for she had then and there accepted for both of us unconditionally so that i could not without being rude make any excuse for staying away dulcie i said when we were again alone i wish you hadn't accepted that invitation without first of all consulting me i really am not keen to go oh don't be silly she exclaimed joyously and putting her arms about my neck she gave me three delicious kisses we have quarrelled all the afternoon you were perfectly horrid to me you know you were and if we mope here together all the evening we shall most likely fall out again and that will be absurd besides i feel just in the humour for a jolly dinner party and i'm sure any party given by connie is bound to be jolly just as jolly as she is i do think she is such a fascinating person don't you mike oh i am sorry i quite forget you don't like her I have not said that I don't like her. I do like her, Dulcie, in a sense, and up to a point, but I still hold to the opinion I formed of her when I met her first. I wouldn't trust her implicitly. "'Never mind, Mike,' she cried in high spirits. "'We'll set all your prejudices aside tonight and try to enjoy ourselves. I wonder who'll be there. I quite forgot to ask her.' "'Probably nobody you know, or else she would have told you. She said—' friends from town, so there are not likely to be any of our friends from about here. We ought to start soon after seven, as she said dinner would be at eight. With the snow as thick as it is, it may take us quite an hour to get to Newbury. Twelve miles, remember? We were the last to arrive, and I confess that the moment we were shown into the room, and I realized who Mrs. Stapleton's other guests were, I mentally upbraided myself for having come, or rather. For having let Dulcie come. The first to whom our hostess introduced Dulcie was Mrs. Gastrell, and directly afterwards she presented to Dulcie Mrs. Gastrell's cousin, as she called him, none other than Hugesson Gastrell, who was standing by. To my surprise Easterton and Jack Osborne were there, and the widow seemed pleased at finding that I knew them. I guessed it was owing to Easterton's being there that Jasmine Gastrell was made to pass as gastrell's husband with singular formality she made dulcie and me acquainted with everybody which struck me as odd in these days when introductions at dinner-parties receptions and balls have quite gone out of fashion mr barrington mrs stapleton said taking me across the room to two men engaged apparently in earnest conversation i want to make you and lord cranmere and mr wollaston known to one another and interrupting them she introduced us there was nothing striking about the earl of cranmere a man past middle age he had i thought a rather weak face a small fair beard neatly trimmed and pointed concealed his chin as i looked at him i wondered whether were that beard removed i could see any chin at all the short upper lip was hidden by a fair moustache he had also whiskers the fair hair which was rather thin on top was carefully parted in the middle and plastered down on both sides. His complexion was clear, the complexion of a man who lives a good deal in the open, and his eyes were pale blue with almost golden lashes and eyebrows. He inclined to stoutness and spoke with a slight lisp. This, then, was the man, or rather one of the men, I thought, as I noted these points about him while we exchanged remarks, concerning whom Jack Osborne had been so mysteriously questioned while he lay bound upon the bed in that dark room in Grafton Street. I knew Lord Cranmere to be a particular friend of Jack's, though in appearance no two men could have presented a greater contrast. What mostly kept my thoughts busy, however, was the presence of Hugesson Gastrell. Since his name had been mentioned by Harold Logan on his dying bed, i had carefully debated whether or not to tell easterton who had let him his house what i now knew about him also whether to tell sir roland challoner that osborne and i had actually met Gastrell. unable to decide i had put the case to osborne and eventually we had decided to say nothing at any rate for the moment to anybody at all what would be the good jack had argued you have the word of a dying man and that's all and what is there that you can prove against this man Gastrell at present? Besides, if you say anything you may find yourself forced to reveal that you know who the dead man was, that you know him to have been Lord Logan's son, and you told me that Sir Roland wants particularly to avoid doing that. No, keep silent and await developments, that's my advice, as you have asked for it. He'll probably end by hanging himself if you give him rope enough. I wouldn't tell even Dulcie if I were you. I was thinking of all this again when my train of thought was suddenly cut by a voice at my elbow. Mr. Barrington, I want to introduce you to Mrs. Gastrell. Come with me, will you? I turned abruptly. Connie Stapleton was at my elbow, and she spoke in soft purring tones. She's the woman you asked me if I knew the other night at Mr. Gastrell's reception. She went on in an undertone as we walked towards the woman. I was introduced to her a couple of nights later. She is a cousin of Mr. Gastrell's. Almost before I had time to collect my thoughts, she had introduced me, adding a moment later, with one of her charming smiles, and will you take Mrs. Gastrell in to dinner? I was debating whether or not to refer to our previous meeting at Mearsfield Gardens, when Mrs. Gastrell herself solved the difficulty. I wonder she said, her great eyes very wide open, her gaze resting full on mine, if you remember that we have met before. It was just before Christmas. You and Mr. Osborne called in the middle of the night to ask if Hugesson had lost his purse. We both thought it so kind of you. I remembered a good deal more than that, but I did not tell her so. I remembered, too, that she had seemed to speak sarcastically, almost mockingly, that night, when she said she thought it kind of Jack to have come out all the way, just to inquire if Gastrell had accidentally left his purse at the club. She appeared now, however, to mean what she said, and so I only answered, "'How, having met you once, Mrs. Gastrell, could I forget our meeting? What rather astonishes me is that you should remember me by sight, seeing that we spoke for a few minutes only.' She smiled in acknowledgment of the compliment, and I found myself wondering how many men that terribly alluring smile of hers had enslaved from first to last. "'Would you believe it?' she went on, almost without a pause. "'We were very nearly burnt in a dreadful fire that broke out in that house on Christmas Eve. We only managed to escape with a few of our belongings. We had not, I am thankful to say, anything very valuable there, because the house had been sublet to us so that the furniture was not ours.' you certainly were fortunate in a sense i answered marveling at her self-possession and mentally asking myself if she spoke with conviction and whether i had after all formed a wrong opinion about her as well as about our hostess then i heard gastrell's voice behind me and that brought me to my senses if such a man were a guest of mrs stapleton's It seemed quite on the cards that men and women of equally bad character might also be included among her friends. I had several reasons for suspecting Mrs. Gastrell of duplicity, and I determined to remain on my guard. The dinner, I confess, was excellent. I was glad to see that Dulcie sat between Jack Osborne and Lord Easterton, and was thus out of harm's way. We dined at a round table, and almost facing me were two unintelligent-looking women, I had heard their names, but the names conveyed nothing to me. These women, both past middle age, somehow had the appearance of being extremely rich. They sat on either side of Hugesson Gastrell, whose conversation appeared to be amusing them immensely. One other woman made up the party of twelve, a dark, demure, very quiet little person, with large dreamy eyes, a singularly pale complexion, and very red lips. She was dressed almost simply which the other two women certainly were not, and altogether she struck me as looking somewhat out of place in that galere. Champagne flowed freely, and gradually we all became exceedingly vivacious. Once, when I glanced across at Dulcie, after conversing animately for ten minutes or so with the beautiful woman at my side, I thought I noticed a troubled look in her eyes, but instantly it disappeared, and she smiled quite happily then turning to her neighbor jack osborne she said something to him in an undertone which made him laugh and he too looked across at me it had struck me all the evening that jack was in exceptionally high spirits and more than once i had wondered if he had some special reason for being so it was an extraordinary dinner-party the more i looked about me the more astonishing it seemed a stranger entering the room would have noticed nothing unusual he would have seen a number of apparently quite ordinary men and women dining and enjoying themselves, people rather more sociable, perhaps, than the guests at dinner-parties often are. And yet I had reason to believe that among these ostensibly respectable people, three at least there were whose lives were veiled in a mystery of some sort, I hoped it might be nothing worse. The opinion I had formed of our hostess is already known." In addition there was that strange young man, Hugesson Gastrell, who, knowing everyone in London, was, in a sense, known by no one. For what did anybody know about him? Questioned, people invariably answered that he came from Australia or Tasmania and had inherited a large fortune from an uncle. That was all. They knew naught of his parents or his antecedents. His private life was a closed book, my glance rested on my neighbor's white well manicured hands several times already during dinner i had observed how graceful they were and had noticed the long slender fingers the well-shaped polished nails fingers on which precious stones shone and sparkled as the rays cast down from beneath the shades of the subdued electric lamps touched them at frequent intervals suddenly a thought flashed in upon me and involuntarily i caught my breath the voice of a dying man was calling to me was crying a name in my ears as it had done that day i had sat with sir roland challoner by harold logan's bed and watched the fearful eyes gazing into vacancy jasmine it is all i ask all i want my darling woman wouldn't otherwise have killed her it was her fault oh no discovery is impossible black charred beyond all hope of recognition did right to kill her dear i the sound of the voice i seemed to hear it distinctly in spite of the conversation and laughter all around and the picture which rose simultaneously into the vision of my imagination made me recoil my gaze was set again upon those pale graceful hands with their blue veins their scintillating gems as in a dream i heard jasmine gastrell in conversation with cranmere seated upon her other side, heard too his silly talk, his empty laughter. Her hands seemed now completely to hold my gaze. I could not look away, and as I watched them the feeling of revulsion rose. Conjectures, suspicions, hideous thoughts filled my brain as my eyes remained riveted. Now the fingers looked like snakes, strange flesh-tended reptiles with eyes emerald green and ruby red cruel, sinuous. Now great knots of muscle stood out upon her bare arms. Her hands were clutching something, what it was I could not see. The fingers grew twisted and distorted, they had crimson stains upon them, the very nails were shot with blood, and I thought I saw. My train of thought was cut by my neighbor on my right. What she had said I hardly knew, and did not care. Still I was glad that she had spoken. THE INTERRUPTION HAD DIVERTED MY ATTENTION AND BROUGHT MY THOUGHTS FROM DREAMLAND BACK INTO ACTUAL LIFE. THEN THE THOUGHT CAME TO ME. WHAT WAS THE OBJECT OF THIS DINNER-PARTY? WHY HAD CONNIE STAPLETON INVITED THESE PEOPLE DOWN TO Newbury? WHY, IF SHE WISHED TO GIVE A DINNER-PARTY, HAD SHE NOT GIVEN IT IN TOWN? FROM THE CONVERSATION DURING DINNER I HAD GATHERED THAT THE GUESTS, ONE AND ALL, LIVED IN LONDON. It seems strange, therefore, to the verge of eccentricity, to ask them to come fifty miles to dine. True, the cuisine at the Rook was above reproach, the hotel itself excellently appointed, but none the less. "'Don't you agree, Mr. Barrington?' Mrs. Gastrell exclaimed, laughing as she turned from Crenmere to me. "'I didn't catch the question,' I said with a start, again brought suddenly to earth. Lord Cranmere is of opinion that the man you found in hiding at Holt Manor from the descriptions which have been given of him at some time or other have been a gentleman. I say, no, that no gentleman could sink so low as to become a common criminal of that kind. One can understand a gentleman, by which I mean a man of education and careful upbringing, being driven through force of circumstances to rob a bank or even to forge a signature to a check, but for such a man to sink to the level of a common housebreaker is unthinkable don't you agree with me her eyes shone strangely as they rested upon mine not until now had the wonderful intelligence in their purple-green depths struck me so forcibly from the orange-tinted lamps before her on the table the light which shone up in her face seemed to increase their brilliance accentuate their expression and their power it imparted too to her extraordinary complexion a peculiar, livid tint, while the masses of her burnished red-brown hair, coiled about her head in great ropes and dressed low in her neck, was shot with a chestnut shade which greatly enhanced its beauty. I paused before answering. For fully ten minutes she had not addressed me, so deeply engaged had she'd been in conversation with Lord Cranmere. Why should she all at once interrupt her talk and put this question to me? none but sir roland challoner and i were aware of the dead man's identity even we had no actual proof that he had been lord logan's son though our discovery of the locket considered in relation to certain facts known to sir roland left no room for doubt that locket sir roland had appropriated in order that the dead man's identity might not be traced and the family name tardis jasmine castrell must of course be aware of his identity did she suspect that i knew his name and could this be an attempt to entrap me into revealing that I knew it? "'That is a question difficult to answer,' I said guardedly. "'I believe there are instances on record of men of education, of men even of good birth, sinking to the lowest depth of degradation when once they had begun to tread the downward path. It would be interesting to know who that man really was. He wouldn't tell his name, wouldn't even hint at it. So that, of course, you don't know it. Naturally.' again that keen searching expression in the large luminous eyes they seemed to look right through me they seemed to read my thoughts and wrest my secrets from me and you found nothing upon him that might have given you a clue i suppose nothing in his pockets no marks upon the body there was nothing he was wearing that might have put you on the track absolutely nothing i answered thinking of the locket as i looked straight into her eyes never before had i realized how cleverly I could lie. It was close on midnight when we all assembled in the hall preparatory to leaving. Those of us who were leaving, Hugesson Gastrell had left long before, in fact immediately after dinner, as he had, he said, an important appointment in London. Somebody nudged me lightly as he brushed past, and glancing round I caught Osborne's eye. He made no sign whatever, yet there was something in his look which made me think he wanted me, and a minute later i sauntered after him into the room where the hats and coats had been but for us the room was now deserted glancing quickly to the right and left jack walked over to a corner where a tall screen stood there was nobody behind it he beckoned to me and i approached we are among a set of scoundrels he said rapidly under his breath i am glad to see that you too didn't recognize him recognize who i asked in astonishment also speaking in a whisper "'Preston, the ex-detective, I introduced him to you the last time we met in town.' "'I remember the man perfectly, but surely he isn't here.' Jack's lips stretched into a grin. "'Lord Cranmere,' he said. "'That's Preston.' He chuckled. "'Cranmere's own brother was actually deceived when we brought the two together as a test,' he went on. "'Preston is a genius. He doesn't merely make up to look like someone else.' he doesn't when he is made up just impersonate the character for the time he is the man he feels like him he says he shares his views he becomes his other ego he has the advantage in this case of knowing cranmere well and he has in consequence excelled himself to-night the way he has hit off cranmere's list is marvellous easterton who meets cranmere frequently is at this moment in the hall arguing with Preston about land taxation and small holdings under the impression that he is talking to Cranmere. It really is rather amusing. When I had expressed my astonishment and we had talked for a minute or two he suddenly grew serious. But remember, Mike, he said, laying his hand upon my shoulder, nobody knows this, nobody but you and I. Preston has assured me that the success of our efforts to run the leaders of this gang to ground He tells me he is sure there is a gang working together and playing into one another's hands very cleverly will largely depend upon our discreetness and secretiveness, also upon our tact and our knowledge of when to act. So not a word, mind, not a syllable, even to Dulcie Challoner. Have I your promise?' Dulcie and I talked but little as we sped homeward through the darkness. She seemed depressed, I thought, though she assured me that she had thoroughly enjoyed herself, and was feeling quite well. I must say that the mental atmosphere of that party had affected me unpleasantly, though I could not have said precisely why. On and on the car travelled smoothly, almost noiselessly. Snow was falling, it had been falling for two hours, the chauffeur had told us before we started, though not very heavily. The night was quite still. We had long passed the tiny hamlets a mile or two from Newbury, and we were now on the five-mile stretch of winding road between there and holt Stacy. Soon we passed a signpost close to holt Stacy railway station. As we spread through the village some moments later, the houses and cottages all wrapped in darkness seemed to spring forward into the light one after another as though to peer at us as we shot by. Now, holt Stacy lay behind us, and only four miles remained from the time we had left newbury no vehicle of any kind had passed us nor any human being nor had we overtaken any dulcie nestling close to me in the warm comfortable brougham was more than half asleep i too felt drowsy and i feared that more than once my chin had dropped forward with a jerk suddenly the car swerved abruptly to the right so tightly were the brakes applied at the same instant that we were both thrown forward almost onto the floor The car lurched, rose up on one side, then as I instinctively threw my arms about Dulcie to protect her if possible from what seemed about to be a very serious accident, the car righted itself and stopped dead. "'Good heavens! What has happened?' I exclaimed as the chauffeur who had sprung off his seat opened the door. Dulcie still lay in my arms, trembling with fear, though from the first she had not uttered a sound or in the least lost her head. "'Someone lying in the road, sir,' he answered. Drunk, I shouldn't wonder. He was half covered with snow and I all but ran over him. Lying in the snow? Why, he'll die if he's left there, I exclaimed. Go and have a look at him and then come back to me. Several minutes passed and the chauffeur did not return. Becoming impatient, I opened the door of the brougham and called out. A moment later, the man appeared. The electric torch he carried, one he used when occasion arose to examine the car in the dark, was still switched on. The hand that held it trembled a little, and in the light which shone down inside the brougham I noticed that the chauffeur looked singularly pale. "'Could you kindly step out for a moment, please, sir?' he said in a curious tone. Guessing that something serious must be amiss to prompt him to ask me to step out into the deep snow in my evening shoes, I got out at once, in spite of Dulcie's entreating me not to do so, and get my feet soaked. When I had shut the car door and we had walked a few paces, the chauffeur stopped abruptly. Sir, he said in a hoarse voice. Well, what? I asked, also stopping. Sir, it's Churchill, the gardener. Poor fellow. It's awful. He's dead, sir. Quite cold. He, he's been killed. Murdered. End of chapter twelve. Recording by Tom Weiss. Tom's dot